This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... Very, very uh, bad situation here in this area. Many buildings collapsed and uh, still rescue teams are working on the ruins uh, try to find anybody uh, on, under the ruins. That's VOA Turkish service stringer Mahmoud Bozarslan reporting from the earthquake-devastated Turkish town of Adiaman. Details coming up. Also, in the DRC North Kivu province, eight people were killed when protesters clashed with UN peacekeepers. Some leading political parties in Nigeria are intensifying their campaigns for the upcoming general elections. And Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is due to meet with officials in Sudan today. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. The death toll from a devastating earthquake continues to rise in Turkey and Syria. It currently stands at close to 17,000 with concerns that it still could skyrocket further as rescue teams reach isolated areas and the injured. I talked to VOA Turkish service stringer Mahmoud Bozarslan, who is in Adiaman, a deprived town in southeast Turkey. He describes it as looking like a war zone and tells me close to 800 people are already dead there. I'm uh, in Adiyaman province, which is affected from the uh, huge earthquake very badly. It seemed like uh, there was a war here, uh, and uh, it seemed like uh, Boulevard is bombed by uh, aircrafts. So you're saying Both it looks like a war zone? That's what you're trying to describe? Yes, it, it looks, looks like, like a war, war zone. zone. I d- yes, yes, uh, exactly. It looks like a war zone. Uh, you know, uh, when I saw this uh, uh, street, I, I imagined that it's Syria. It uh, looked like a Syrian war. Uh, many, many buildings collapsed on the both sides, uh, left and right sides. And uh, still rescue teams are working on the ruins, uh, try to find anybody uh, on, under the ruins. A few hours ago, experts were here. They listened to the ruin. They sent some special instruments under the ruin and tried to find if there's a voice or not. They found the voice, voice of three young people under the ruins, and now they're trying to rescue them. Mahmoud, you're talking about the rescue. Yes. Is this yes. government-sponsored or are these uh, private entities? How is the rescue effort over there going on? There are many of uh, NGOs which are uh, to, uh, working voluntarily. Okay. Uh, came from all all over the Turkey, all uh, the parts of Turkey. For example, the the point where I am uh, talking with you, uh, there's uh, a majority of Gümüşhane, which is on uh, Black Sea side of Turkey. They came here. For example, there's a rescue team, medical rescue team uh, named Umke in Turkish. They are here. And on the other side, there are some uh, private uh, companies who, which are experts on uh, rescuing or experts on cleaning ruins. They are here. On both sides, we can say, uh, are working. Uh, so how many people 
reportedly have lost their lives there. Yesterday, till yesterday, the authorities were explaining the numbers city by city, but uh, from uh, last evening, they stopped to explain city by city. Yesterday, yesterday the number of this uh, loss of this city was 720. I think today it, it uh, rises uh, 800 because uh, they are uh, receiving some information from many places that the that people are uh, taking out from the ruins uh, so uh, it, it's uh, something uh, like 800 how how did you get to the city did you uh, drive there yes i drive there uh, but it was difficult to get so the, the roads highway. are very crowded many people try to reach their relatives try to bring aid to the city and this caused uh, traffic on the roads uh, and inside the city, there are many cars on the roads. And because of the collapsing of uh, buildings, some roads cannot be used. And this uh, also caused traffic. Uh, so it was so difficult to reach the city. That was VOA Turkey service reporter Mahmoud Bozarslan speaking with me from the devastated Turkish town of Adiaman. South African rescue workers say freezing temperatures and aftershocks are hampering their efforts to find survivors of the earthquake that hit Turkey and Syria on Monday. Thousands of buildings have collapsed with a death toll close to 17,000. The South African relief organization Gift of the Giver says it's particularly concerned about northwestern Syria, where millions of people already rely on aid because of a civil war. Darren Taylor reports. Gift of the Givers has worked in disaster areas and war zones across the world since 1992. But founder Imtiaz Suleiman says the tragedy in Turkey and Syria has astounded him. His medical doctors, paramedics and rescue workers arrived in Turkey yesterday. Speaking to reporters via Zoom, Dr. Simpiwe Subua says he's tried to detach himself emotionally from what he's witnessing. So we use search cameras, sniffer dogs, to search for any persons that may still be alive. And then once we get confirmation that there's missing persons in there, then we start the efforts of uh, drilling into the buildings and searching for the missing persons to execute them out. He says he's happy when his squad finds someone alive, but celebrates with only a silent prayer before the search begins again. There's an element of preparing yourself mentally for whatever you're going to find there. But we're quite fortunate as South African paramedics in that with the amount of trauma that we experience, I mean, no other paramedics in the world experience what we do. So we can work anywhere in the world. I think we've got that privilege, and that's why when there are these kinds of incidents, we are one of the first people to be called to assist. South Africa has some of the worst violent crime in the world. Kasim Borat is coordinating Gift of the Givers' efforts in the quake zone. This place, Adana, has been affected not as bad, but is considered the gateway to the entire region. This is the fully functional airport closest to the disaster area. So now we're going to start seeing the mass destruction. The main coordinating desk of this disaster, which is like a ministry, is Afad. Then they're going to deploy us to the area that they feel our team with our equipment and our skills will be best suited. But while rescue efforts and resources are organized in Turkey, across the border in Syria, where thousands are also dead and missing, it's very different.
they haven't received any aid from anyone. No one called us, no one said that they will help us. The scale of destruction is unimaginable. Ismail Al-Abdullah is an aid worker who cooperates with Gift of the Givers in the city of Aleppo. He says the area's infrastructure was already very weak after years of attacks from President Bashar al-Assad's forces. As the time passes, we lose lives. That's why we're calling for help. We're calling for immediate help. We need heavy equipment. We need uh, medical supplies. We need generators, diesel, blankets for those who lost their houses, food, even drinkable water. Al-Abdullah says he and his colleagues are digging through steel and concrete with their bare hands. We rescued many people alive and healthy and retrieved dead bodies, many dead bodies, families, children, women. The number of the injured will double, the injured of the dead will double. We're talking here about entire families under destroyed buildings. A town in north, 40% of the town reduce it to rubble. Our expectation, maybe it will reach 20,000 just in northwest Syria. Gift of the Givers established two hospitals in northwestern Syria in 2012. Suleiman says medical staff there are doing their best, but the facilities are overwhelmed and have run out of supplies. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. President Cyril Ramaphosa is delivering the toughest State of the Nation address in his first term tonight as citizens are angry and disappointed at deteriorating economic and social conditions. The address is also uh, likely to be disrupted by opposition parties after their attempt to impeach Ramaphosa failed. To Sokumalo reports from Johannesburg. Many analysts are calling the speech a case of break or make for Ramaphosa. Opposition parties tried and failed to impeach him in December over a scandal involving millions of dollars allegedly kept at his private farm. The Economic Freedom Fighters, EFF party, has made it clear legislators will not allow Ramaphosa to address the nation until he is held accountable for his farm scandal. EFF leader Julius Malema told a recent media briefing. The courts can protect him anyhow, but who will face him in parliament? And there is no court that will protect him. We will be there and we are going to take him head on. The general public has also raised dissatisfaction on how Ramaphosa has run the country. Constant power cuts have disrupted all aspects of their lives. More importantly, it is killing the few jobs left and citizens are demanding answers, not rhetoric from the president. Unemployed South African Cindy Pagati recently participated in a march demanding $85 monthly unemployment grant. It's still not uh, something that people can live on, but to be honest, to a person who has lost job, a person who does not have any income, it's something better than nothing. Rising crime, especially rape and murder of women and children, has also sparked national anger with citizens accusing the government of failing to protect them. The rising cost of living and interest rates have left many citizens barely surviving. However, Parliament Speaker Nosivio Mapisa Ngagula 
told the media that all measures have been put in place to ensure the president gives a full speech to the nation uninterrupted. Tusokumalo for VOA News, Johannesburg. In the DRC, the provincial government of North Kivu says eight people were killed and 28 wounded when protesters clashed with a convoy of UN peacekeepers yesterday. Reuters says the attack on a fleet returning to Goma with supplies was stopped by protesters at the Mungi camp that shelters hundreds of displaced people. North Kivu's military governor, Konstantin Dima Kongaba, says the protesters stopped the convoy to ask about its cargo and attacked the peacekeepers when they refused to sell food to them. The UN's MONUSCO forces add that protesters used stones to block the road and stole the contents of four trucks before setting them on fire. Authorities say a joint investigation will look into the incident. Tensions have grown between UN forces and the public who accuse the peacekeepers of failing to protect from atta- protect them from attacks by advancing Tutsi-led M23 rebels. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is due to meet with officials in Sudan today in a move aimed to strengthen economic ties, including infrastructure. Reuters notes that Sudan was cut off from international financing after its military overthrew a Western-backed transitional government in 2021. Sudan also sought closer ties with Moscow before the overthrow of President Omar al-Bashir in 2019, and the deputy leader of Sudan's ruling council expressed openness to hosting a Russian military base during a visit to the country a day before it invaded Ukraine last February. Western sources say Russia's mercenary Wagner Group is also involved in extracting gold in Sudan. Reuters notes Sudan also has hosted envoys from the U.S., Britain, and France this week. Some leading political parties in Nigeria are optimistic they'll do well in upcoming general elections and have intensified their campaigns. The top three presidential candidates held their first rallies today. Mike Mbonier reports from Port Harcourt. Nigeria has strict rules for election campaigning. For instance, until September, Independent Electoral Commission of Nigeria, or INEC, banned political campaigning by parties and their candidates. INEC also has warned the parties to avoid using abusive language against opponents, and the Commission advised parties and candidates to focus on issues in their campaigns. With the first ballot to be cast on February 25th, In the presidential and national assembly elections, some Nigerians have mixed reactions to the campaigns. Patrick Samuel is a political analyst in Port Harcourt. Actually, um, I would say on the one hand I'm I'm impressed by candidates themselves. However, I'm also not um, impressed about the behavior of followership. Now, there have been cases of um, Togri you know, shooting of guns, harassment of politicians across the country. And uh, we need to address that presently. And the, the oppressive uh, apparatus of government need to be alert so they can suppress this new development in the polity. Samuel says 
He's impressed with the way the parties have been selling their points to the people. Dr. Kamde Benjamin, a Portacot-based businessman, however, sees the campaigns in a different way. So far, it has not met my own expectations because uh, I was expecting the parties to come up with issues that relate to the problems facing Nigerians. But what we see right now is accusations and counter-accusations and uh, things that does not have any bearing to the welfare of Nigerians. Benjamin calls on relevant Nigerian security agencies to check reported violence at campaign venues to prevent injuries. Housewife Susan Wine is disappointed that the parties and candidates have not spoken about gender-related issues in their campaigns. As women, we have observed and discovered that it haven't really been issue-based. Rather, it's been hateful speeches here and there from these politicians, causing them to lose focus of what they're really supposed to tell the populace. And for these reasons, we are all discouraged, especially the women, because we haven't really heard much from them in line with what they have or what they have put in their mandate for the women. Winner says, however, a few candidates have spoken about their programs for women during private visits to their campaign offices. The electoral body says campaigns for the presidential and national assembly races will end at midnight on February 23rd. The governorship and state assembly elections are set for March 11, and those campaigns will end on March 9th. This is Mike Mbonye for VOA News in Portacot, Nigeria. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. The UN Special Representative to Libya, Abdullahi Batili, met with the House of Representative deputies from all three parts of the country, stressing that it's time to meet the expectations of the 2.8 million registered voters by holding long-delayed elections. He discussed with Prime Minister Abdul Hamid Dabiba ways to end the political stalemate and prepare the country for inclusive national voting this year. Wolfgang Pochtai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya, discussed with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El Shinawi whether the country's rival factions are ready to respond to this call. No, I don't think so. Because the main questions, who is allowed to run for presidency, are still not solved. This is about dual citizens serving military, like Khalifa Haftar, the commander of the LNA in the east. This is about Prime Minister Dabeba himself, who pledged before the Libya political dialogue forum not to run. This is about Saif al-Islam. Abdullah Bateyi is very clever. He is aware of this. And this is the reason why he discussed these topics also with Prime Minister Dabeba and LNA commander Haftar, because these are the two guys who can make decisions about this, who can make a compromise. The House of Representatives and the High Council of State, even if they agree on something, if the Beba and Haftar don't agree, they can forget about it. Aguila Saleh just recently proposed to use the amended constitutional declaration from 2011 as a foundation for the elections. This is a good idea from my point of view, 
but it was immediately rejected by the Constitution Drafting Assembly. They want to have the faulty and vague 2017 draft constitution as a foundation for the election. But this would need an agreement between HY and HCS and also a referendum. So this would take much longer than if the constitutional declaration of 2011 would be used. Nevertheless, an agreement about the key open questions that I've mentioned before would be still required. Self-proclaimed Libyan National Army Commander Khalifa Haftar received designated rival Prime Minister Fatih Bashagha for a discussion on his government situation and the general political situation. This is the first meeting between the two since Bashagha's appointment on February of last year. What do you make of that? This is a very significant meeting. Fatih Bashagha was perceived by many in Tripolis and in Misrata as too close to Khalifa Haftar. So he avoided contacts with the LNA commander ever since his appointment. But the situation has changed for him significantly. He failed to take over Tripoli. He has next to no practical influence. He is increasingly ignored by the international community. And HRJR Saleh just uses him as a tool to pressure Prime Minister Tabeba. He seems to lose also the support of an increasing number of members of the House of Representatives. Some want him to testify about his progress and about his failure to move to Tripoli. So he is altogether quite under pressure. And therefore, he seeks the support of Khalifa Haftar, who is still the single most influential person in the East. But I would not bet that Haftar continues to support Bashaga if there is a better alternative for him. CIA Director William Burns pressured General Haftar in mid-January to expel Russian mercenary group Wagner. The U.S. had become worried Wagner could be tapping into new revenue streams, either by being paid through Libya's oil revenues or by branching into the country's thriving fuel smuggling networks. Would Haftar respond to the U.S. call? The role of Wagner is critical for the Libyan National Army. They are balancing their Turkish presence in Western Libya. They provide the backbone of Haftar's air force and of his air defense until he has trained a sufficient number of pilots and technicians in Russia. Wagner is needed as a mobile ground reserve force. They shall act as a tripwire in the case of an attack on the east to buy time for an eventual Egyptian intervention. So altogether, I don't expect Hefter to agree to Wagner's withdrawal before he gets some other kind of security guarantees against an eventual combined offensive of the Turks and the Western militias, or until there is a Turkish withdrawal. One must be also aware that Hefter doesn't want to annoy the Russians because he needs their training and logistic support for his air force and for his air defense. That was Wolfgang Postai, former Austrian military attaché in Libya, speaking with VOA's Mohamed al-Shenawi. The World Health Organization says cholera has killed at least 1,210 people in Malawi with active transmission taking place in 27 out of the country's 29 districts. The WHO says nearly 37,000 cases have been reported since last March. The French news agency AFP says Malawi has carried out two vaccination campaigns, but only one of the two recommended doses have been administered due to limited supplies. The WHO is also working to improve sanitation and treated drinking water that can be infected with the bacteria that causes the illness. Malaria outbreaks have been recorded in neighboring Zambia and Mozambique, as well as in Nigeria, Ethiopia, Kenya, the DRC, Cameroon and Somalia. 
The French news agency AFP notes that cases of malaria are rising worldwide. 80,000 cases were reported in Africa last year. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Iheyes Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Adrias Rigas, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.